Kia ora everybody, what's up? It is Robert Hollis. Welcome to Robert Live. What is Robert Live about? Well, I'll tell you. Basically, we're on an intersection between content, commerce, culture, creativity, and all sorts of bits in between. And definitely not forgetting community. We chat with smart people, learn about lots of stuff, and it's all of this mission or thought around learn, share, repeat. What do I know? Who can I share it with? And how can I pass it on to others? Coming up on today's show, we're catching up with Mr. Kirk Hope. He's the Chief Executive of Business New Zealand. Before that, he was the CEO of the New Zealand Bankers Association. And prior to that, he was the Executive Director of the Financial Services Federation. Very smart man indeed. Basically, he's a weapon. He's a smart brain, and he's done a whole bunch of stuff in the space. We're going to be catching up with him. You can hear the episodes of this anywhere you get uh, your little Spotify stuff. You can get on Spotify or Rover, download the app. Whatever you want to do, feel free. Go for it. You can get on in there. Just search up for Rebet Live and you're off to the races. I like the show. I get to talk to smart people. Today I'm talking with Kirk Hope. Rock and roll. Kia ora Kirk. How are you, my friend? Great, thanks. Well, you're in Auckland, not Wellington, so it's obviously going to be greater. Uh, <laughs> weather less shitty, less windy, more activities, more surfing, more running, more biking. Basically, everything's just usually usually better in Auckland than Wellington anyway. What is, let's start with this. What is the greatest thing that you love about not being in Wellington? How about that? <laughs> uh, probably more sunshine hours per year. <laughs> um, you know, waking up, seeing the water sparkling instead of muddy grey. Um, I love Wellington, don't get me wrong. It's been 26 years there, but it's quite refreshing to wake up and not have to battle against a game force one to go for a bike ride. Uh, the surf's kind of always on in Auckland, which is great. Um, so you can get uh, really good waves on either coast, out at Pihar or on the west, wherever you like to go. And then um, then up on the east, out Tafranui or uh, further up. So, yeah, it's that's probably the key differences for me, I think. So the um, so on that, when you're not doing the crazy stuff of being the chief executive of Business New Zealand, is part of the escapism surfing? Is that a big a big part of it like that like your your headspace where is that your refresh time is that where your headspace goes where's your escapism to keep balance yeah i'm probably probably a couple of things uh um de- definitely surfing uh because it just gives you a bit of clarity and you better be focused um especially if you if you're going out in anything above head height when you're over 50 years of age you're taking a risk um and and especially if you've got a nine foot board which is what you need to catch a wave when you're over 50. um you got the mini so, mal, yeah, you got the mini mal out yeah 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 it's even slightly bigger than that so probably a mal you know uh so it's um you know that is a really great place to just clear your head and get out amongst the elements and enjoy life uh and and separate from some of the some of the stresses and pressures of of um that, that can come with you know running a large industry organization like business new zealand and the other thing i get into is but but as but a biking i wasn't really into biking before i kind of moved up to auckland and now i sort of get out and yeah, when i can which is pretty regularly um just shuffle around like um you know like i do on an old mountain bike <laughs> there you go now i'm always interested with you know where people's escapism some of them will be art or poetry or music or writing or walking or meditation or whatever it may be and it's just become very clear for anyone who's high performing executive or anyone that's you know super busy just proactively 
like they'll schedule and block out those times for them to make sure they keep that balance so it doesn't just totally tip over one side. It feels like we've kind of gone away from that shift of just 20 hour days and send it forever and all of a sudden you just like tank off and, and stuff. Now it's fine. It's kind of become, it feels like it's become cooler to sort of find that balance off. So uh, it's cool to know that you're getting out there on the waves, man, doing some doing some shuckers, some full dog pig shuckers out in flipping piha. I like it. So I, I want to go this. So you ended up with uh, Business New Zealand and this was, I think you took it over, was it started last year? Was it so? Oh no, I've been there quite, quite a long time. I started in uh, 2016, February 2016. So it's been a while. But then you moved up to Auckland, sorry, last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got to go up. What have the biggest thing that you've noticed in the change of business since 2016 to now in the last eight years? Uh, a real, uh, a real development in focus um, from employees on purpose-led businesses and a really big shift um, in businesses trying to redesign themselves to be purpose-led. Um, so that they can, you know, get better quality people, I guess, because um, that's that's going to be their um, their super juice, if you like. Uh, it's, it's always going to be the people. Um, so that's that's been a real shift, uh, a real um, uh, a real focus on sustainability, a real growth in the focus on sustainability, uh, and wanting to ensure that what they're doing is is good for New Zealand, but also you know good for the world. And that's a bit of a byline that the government of have used, but um, when one of our organisations is this, within the Business New Zealand group is the Sustainable Business Council. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a, um, we, we naturally have a bent towards sustainability, but I've seen a really, really big shift in that space, particularly I think with the work that the government has done around um, zero carbon, the Zero Carbon Act. So there's been a lot of, you know, businesses that have been coalescing about how to decarbonise New Zealand and think about how you can do that without kind of leaving people people behind without um, damaging society and the economy when you make the transition. Um, you know, what happens to industries that, you know, might might not be able to decarbonise or decarbonise as quickly. So those sorts of things have, um, have been sort of, I think, a really significant change in the way business has been thinking since, since 2016. So when you talk about uh, purpose-led businesses, would the way that they would mostly describe it before would be what prof just profit-led businesses? Now tr that transition is that how they would kind of describe it? The transition from profit-led to purpose-led is that kind of the the, the terming? Yeah, I mean, I think they probably want. I think they probably want to be both. <laughs> um, I think yeah. it's fitting fitting in profit to their purpose, but it's also making sure that it's not profit at the cost of all other things, um, because you know uh, some of those things have had have had an impact on on businesses. Um, it's, they've had an impact on their environment that they operate in, the communities that they operate in, uh, and also on their employees. So, so it's sort of a bit of a shift away from short-termism. There's no doubt that in order to reinvest, you've got to have a profitable business. But um, it's also okay. What's the core of what we want to be as a business? Um, and you know, some quite traditional businesses have done some pretty groundbreaking thinking in that regard. You know, if you think about the warehouse. Uh, you know they they've done some incredible work uh, around sustainability and, and being purpose-led uh, and that's had a massive impact on their supply chain frankly you know they've changed a lot of the ways that they they do business and that's you know they've, they've done that, that themselves because they've said we want to be a responsible uh organization operating in, in new zealand the um the headspace it takes from a leadership perspective to shift from not necessarily just profit lead but into purpose with with profit 
What do you think the biggest handbrake has been for, you know, say if you look in the world of media, it's analog to digital, right? We go from VHS to mini DV to DVDs to thing, and now we've got streaming in the cloud. It's a very clear transition, but it's taken, you know, like 10, 20 years to, to, to move everyone along. In that 10 year period, a lot of decision makers and businesses have been 30, 40, 50, 60, they're still in that older, older bracket. What's the hardest challenge you think many of these leaders are struggling with in terms of headspace of being able to shift their brain to not just think of pure extraction from every single cent for the most profit possible while still operating? Like how, how have you, I guess, seen and navigated, um, I guess, others in that journey in terms of the headspace of leadership in New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, I think they've probably been taking some great advice from kind of other leaders. Uh, you know, we operate a CO forum and and it's cross-sectoral. So what they're doing is CEOs are learning from each other about how uh, what what uh, how to how to enable that shift of focus through boards as well. Um, I think there's probably been a, a you know a couple of other big things that have started to help, and that's you know one of the things that if if you're trying to you know fundamentally reshape your business, what you need is often a lot of data to be able to underpin some of those decisions. You want evidence, and I think you know if if you think about the um, the way that technology is developed. Uh, to make data and um, more available and therefore in other tools to make better quality decision making um, re more readily available um, and underpin that with evidence I think that's probably been a big shift and and you know that's kind of becoming exponential you know <laughs> there's that line Moore's nor Moore's law is no more if you know what I mean um, so so it's the, the rate of information is is escalating at a much faster pace um, but there are many, many more tools with which, which to interpret that information. It's that interpretation piece, which I think is incredibly important for, for business leaders in the way that they're making those decisions and the way that boards are making those decisions. And, and I, you know, that's just that's just going to get better and better and better, which is which is great. It means you're not kind of just going, oh, how, how about that? You're making real life, uh, real time decisions and they're enabled. So um, so that would be a that would be a big shift, I think. And as I say, post-COVID and even during COVID, I think you saw a big mindset, you know, people were sort of starting to reevaluate um, the way that they thought about work, for example, um, and some of the big changes that have been happening with, you know, working from home, work-life balance, flexible working, uh, four-day working week. Um, so people are, you know, really starting to think with, especially with the scarcity of um, of people, uh, how can we ensure that you know we don't burn the people, burn these people out? How how can we sh enable them to be the best that they want to, they can be? Uh, so those are some of the big shifts I think again that have been happening in CEOs' headspaces. Man, you, you you did a bunch of through lines there, which I'm interested to dig into. The first one was the thing around data and leadership. How do you think the increase of data has practically changed leadership? Do you think it's for the better or for the worse? Oh, definitely for the better. I, I mean, I think if you're not making evidence-based decisions, you're not you're not going to be making the best decisions. I, I wouldn't imagine. I mean, if you're not, if, you know, it's so available now, and and as I said, I think that's only going to expand, and that expands the scope and capacity and scale of decision making that you can make. You know, before you might have only been able to make decisions within a narrow band. Now you can, now you can look at you can survey a much broader landscape and much more depth. Uh, and bring a lot of critical thinking into that, uh, and a lot of analysis to to make better, say, investment and divestment uh, or other decisions. 
So, so the data, it can get kind of paralysis by analysis now when you can track everything of everything of everything. Do you, have you seen a, a bit of a strategy of businesses of trying to track down, well, what's the most critical thing we need or what is the actual thing thing? Like when you can get so much, it can get so wide. How, how have you seen different business owners pick what data they should actually be tracking as the thing instead of listening to all the noise and just getting flooded with everything which potentially could be worse off for their business? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great, great question. So it's why I referred to before the tools which help you manage and interpret data are, are also really, really important. And, and even some of those are, um, I mean, businesses are using AI to actually re sometimes uh, re remove the variability in, in decision making. So, you know, it, it, it's some of those tools which I think as long as, you know, they're balanced in the way that data is, is collected and aggregated and, and used and thought about, um, AI and other tools can can really really help drive decision making. So you, you get rid of the noise, and you're really only focusing on the, on the on the key things that you want and need to focus on. And then, as I said, you've got a much better decision. You've got a much better basis for decision making. Now, you were the um, previous executive director of the Financial Services uh, Federation. What has been the biggest shift you've, what's the biggest asset that you took across, across in terms of skill set from that into business New Zealand, coming from pure finance across into business? What was something that? Yeah, uh, there's probably, probably three, because I, I was executive director of the Financial Services Federation, uh, which is a great organisation, I would say that. Um, but it, it really helped. I mean, what we were doing at the time that I was executive director, you know, a, a lot of finance companies had failed. It was just at the back end of the global financial crisis. Um, you know, the you know the um, the mid to uh, smaller tier lenders had had their funding lines cut, as people said. You know, I want my money out. Um, so, so some of those balance sheets became really, really challenged. Some of those companies fell over. We see saw quite a bit of that. Um, it was a pretty uh, interesting time for the industry. I mean, I got pretty close to some of the really, really serious people in that industry that have had, you know, long careers and continue to be involved in that industry. And kind of I learned a lot from them. Um, one of them went on to become the uh, chief economist for the Treasury, uh, Gerald Kurosoju. He was the chair. Um, he ran uh, what used to be called PSIS, um, but it's now called the Cooperative Bank. He took it from being a um, being from being the PSIS into the, into the banking industry. Um, so it was great to have access to those sorts of um, critical thinkers at the time, but it was really challenging for the industry. They had to, they had to move away from sort of public funding, if you like, um, into predominantly bank funding because the, because of the regulations that, that came in. Um, I, I mean, I think it, it generally taught me a lot about, um, the kind of basic tools of business management. A lot of New Zealand businesses live off cash flow. Liquidity is really important. But, you know, um, if you run out of capital, uh, what, what can you do <laughs> if your cash flow is shrinking? Um, what are the tools that you might be able to deploy? How can you how can you run? How can you get ahead of that again? How can you see it coming? Um, particularly if you've got lumpy cash flows. Um, and and again, if particularly if, if if capital really really tightens up. So after I finished working at the Financial Services Federation, uh, or the other thing I'll say, it's important. What it taught me uh, as an as an advocate was it's incredibly important for policymakers to 
to listen to the industry uh, as much as they listen to the media who are assessing the industry um, when they're making the rules. Um, because, you know, uh, my observation would be that there were, you know, there were probably some, some, some bad decisions made in the way that those organisations were regulated that probably cost consumers and those businesses money that didn't need to be lost. That's a general observation that can occur within the policy making system. You know, we're involved heavily in that stuff all the time. So then I went into the Bankers Association, so it's mainstream banking and, and ran that for a while before business. Because you're, so, you're a CEO there as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as uh, that was that was a uh, that was again at the back end of the global financial crisis, really telling the story of the banking industry in New Zealand. Like the New Zealand finance industry is is actually pretty strong. Um, I'm not sure people realise you know the the sheer size and scale of it, which is really really important. It does help underpin financial stability generally, and it helps uh, it helps um, it helps I think with a capital stability um, and people I, I you know I suspect that many small businesses would say it's actually quite hard to get you know money out of my bank in certain occasions I think if they go back and they, they, they look at their business and they think about how the best way to communicate with their bank and for the bank to understand what their business is about um, if they've got all those tools uh, you know it's probably going to be less hard um, unless unless actually you know they're selling something that's just not going to work well, it's that thing too of most business owners don't know how to talk about money and they don't know how to talk business for the same language that the way the bankers do and they need the they need the banking relationship but then they potentially don't have the same banking speak so they're speaking two different languages and there's always a bit of a crossover then they don't get their 20 grand overdraft to pay for the pay whatever the th thing may be so uh comms is definitely an interesting one so you've come across both three of those now business new zealand rewinding back at 10 years old if they were say, hey, Kirk, one day you're going to be the executive director of the Financial Services Federation, then you're going to be the CEO of the New Zealand Bankers Association, then you're going to be the CEO of uh, Business NZ, what would you have told yourself? And would you have believed it? I would have said, oh, damn, I'm not going to be a partner in a law firm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you had law before that, you wanted, right? Oh, I did. I have a master's degree in law, yeah. But when I was a kid, when I was a little kid, um, you know, from quite a young age, I always wanted to get I wanted to be a lawyer, get a law degree. I wanted to be a lawyer. You know, I think when I was when I was young, um, you know, the professional services. I as a kid, that was like the that was like um, the upper echelon. <laughs> and um, I came from a relatively modest background, so it was um, you know, I was it was that was kind of where I wanted to get to. And um, and so so I probably wouldn't have believed. Uh, what has happened to my, you know, 50 year old self, if you told that to my 10 year old self, my 10 year old self would have said, why aren't you a partner on law firm? <laughs> well, I, did you, I bet you had like, did you, we used to dress up with the suits and had a little briefcase and stuff. You put your stuff in a little briefcase and all that. I did that for a little bit. I, I got my dad's old briefcase once that had the little lock code on it. And then I put my little papers in, I had nothing to do, but I would chuck them in there, chuck a little calculator in. Did you have a full outfit? Like when you rocking little pocket squares at 12, what were you doing? Uh, prob probably not. I probably did. I probably did. Uh, probably did a bit of that. Um, probably wanted to be, um, you know, one of those one. I used to watch a lot of those uh, kind of criminal defense TV shows. <laughs> so, you know, what was that, like the early law and order days. No, what was it before yeah. that? It was like 
um, not not when it got all cool with suits, and then all of a sudden everyone wanted to buy McKellen 18s, like like it was the, it was the thing in New York, or whatever. Ah, classic. It's yeah. It, it's always funny when I think back of anyone who's in a leader position now. Almost no one ever thought they'd get to where they were, and it's kind of cool sometimes to stop and, and think of of those moments to be like click 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 like you know in a you know previous life was in a snowboard world or whatever, and you know I used to. Um, I paid 40 bucks a week to or 50 bucks a week to live in a, a, a bathroom. And so I'd put the mattress down. I'd put all my clothes in the bathtub and I'd put the foam mattress down with no heating. And, I, and it was, it was my thing. And then now I'll go, you know, go around and do some cool stuff and say, and every time I'd see something epic or cool, I take this mental snapshot and I tell myself back then of like, one day this thing's going to happen. You're there in this like little shitty flipping like sleeping bag and thinking one day it's going to be way better than it was it's always kind of cool to at least give a bit of acknowledgement back to where you came from and stuff too so it's it's cool that you've you've had such an epic um epic shift you talked about law i want to jump into this for a sec what was the transition of out of law and into the more of the financial stuff because obviously you know when you're doing the masters and whatever you're obviously a weapon and pretty brained up was it like there was more intellectual stimulation over there bigger commercial upside what was the what was the lead the way that sort of led you from law into more of the finance I was actually, I was, I was already, I was already in finance. So I did the masters while I was, while I was working at Westpac and it was really to boost my knowledge about, you know, about the whole banking regulatory scheme. Um, so I went into Westpac as a kind of advisor in the regulatory area and became head of regulatory affairs quite quickly. Um, and I knew, I knew quite a lot about it, obviously. Uh, and I knew a lot about the policy making process. So I knew enough about, um, the banking uh, regulatory process, but it was more about it, getting a deeper understanding to understand what the levers of influence might be within that um, within that regulatory framework, um, which all sounds pretty boring, but uh, it was pretty and it was pretty hard work. So, so I just did spend three years on the grind part time doing um, doing a masters, and it was actually really really effective in helping me think about and helping me work alongside some really really. Uh, really smart people at Westpac and, and, and helping the bank itself um, figure out the best way that it could, uh, it could, it, we could manage and um, navigate through, through a pretty complex regulatory system. Now, is that basically the insight on that is because you could understand where they're coming from, you could speak their language a little bit easier to actually find the, the, the way to get through easier, right? Just bit, better, better way to understand where they're coming from to get the deal done or whatever it needs to be. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, it is that it is that language thing, and and making sure. I mean, in some ways, the the role that I had there was a bit of a translator as well. You know, translating between you know regulatory teams, between risk management teams, between legal teams, um, and then between regulatory agencies and the people within regulatory agencies who all have their own language, right? So it, it was that, but you'd got to have a, a pretty strong uh, technical background before you even start to, you know, utilize that translation process, because you've got to, you've got to understand uh, where each of those different perspectives might be coming from. So I think it enabled me to very quickly, um, you know, uh, synthesize different perspectives and different ways of communicating about, about the same sort of subject matter, which I, I think is quite tricky. It's quite a good skill to have. In a, particularly in a corporate environment, because you've got you've got you know communities which all, as you as you rightly point out, they're, they're all kind of speaking slightly different languages, even though even though they sit under this kind of this corporate brand. So um, so yes, but a lot of being able to do that stuff has got to be underpinned by good technical knowledge as well. 
technical knowledge and to get into the world of tech through COVID, it was very clear that technology was the enabler that pretty much enabled everyone to keep kind of existing, right? Now going through that, you know, we we're talking about before the, um, the, I guess the pressure on the economy in terms of the work, the workforce, but to that point where it feels like it's become definitely like an employee's market in many respects, do you think we'd be in the same situation in terms of the pressure of the workforce with it being more an employee's market if it wasn't for COVID? Was this going to happen everywhere? It was, or is it literally because COVID happened, this is now where we're at? How has that cause and effect played out in, in your mind, you think? Yeah, it's a really challenging question. I think where have all the people gone, you know? <laughs> I mean, I, I guess what it, <laughs> what it tells you is, um, you know, ha- I mean, if you go, say, for example, to the U- if anywhere in the Western world appears to be short of people, right? It's because the natural population bases haven't been, haven't been growing in the same way that their economies have. Um, and primarily, you know, people have been coming from eastern parts of the world and Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, sometimes for New Zealand and Latin America, um, places where where the you know places that are still developing, so they've been shifting into developed countries. Um, now a lot of those people went back because you know they didn't want to not see their families for three years. So it's quite interesting. One of the one of the challenges, right, is that the economy has grown. Uh, I think I think it's four four point eight percent bigger than it was pre COVID, and that's with ten percent roughly less people. Uh, so what that tells you is uh, there's probably quite a lot of stress on the people that are here and in, in the workforce. That's something that we've been talking a lot about. Because, you know, if you think about what that, how that plays out practically, right, it's um, it's got to be a grind on people's mental health and physical health. So, um, and and you, you'd normally say, oh, wow, New Zealand's productivity must have massively increased, but at 7.2% inflation, you can't claim productivity. So it's really just people working harder and more people more people involved in the workforce. Um, so at the moment, we've got a participation rate that's an unemployment rate that's the lowest that we've ever had. Um, you know, we've got, uh, as I said, roughly 10% less people that were here. Pre- that so pressure on the workforce, how do you think this plays out? Open the borders back up, open up better visas for more tech people. How do, how do you think it gets the balance back so people aren't potentially overworked, stressed out and all that. Like, how do you think, so say the last three years has got to this point, how do we either build it back or what are, you, what are the ways, what are the things that you're thinking about to sort of bring some, bring some balance back to the workforce? You see what I did there with the force yeah. with the workforce? You see what I did there? Yeah, 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 I think, um, what do I think about this? Well, look, there's no doubt that we've been training New Zealanders at a, at a greater scale and pace uh, than probably we've done for quite some time. Um, but one of the things, one of the peculiarities of uh, having you know very low unemployment is that uh, what that means is that and and quite high wage growth. So people are leaving education to go into the workplace. I mean, one of the areas where you know we've probably won out of that as a country is in apprentices. So that is someone who is in training, but also uh, who is working. So, I mean, the government have done an incredible job, I think, in terms of being under able to underpin um, some vocational uh, education in the apprentice sector. Um, and we, as I said, we, you know, New Zealand's training more um, more apprentices than, than we ever have. So, so the answer is never one thing or the other. You know, you've got to keep upskilling your you know your domestic population base. 
Um, you've got to be attractive to migrants, I think. Um, you know, we were at a bit of a disadvantage because our border opened almost the last, we were the, almost the last country in the world to open um, after COVID. Um, so we're at a bit of a disadvantage there. The, what that kind of means for employers is if they want to rely on immigration, um, we need real simple rules, it needs to be accessible for people. Um, but also probably given that, as I said, you know, the, the whole West, this is happening all over Western countries, you know, you're going to have to probably go and advertise what your business does, um, you know, that why why would you be attractive to someone living in, um, you know, a far-flung part, part of the world? Why would it be good for them to come and work in your business way, da way down here in New Zealand? Um, and we probably have to do that in a way that we haven't had to for, you know, forever or for a very long time. So that's probably a big shift that, a big mental shift that businesses are going to have to make. Um, but again, you know, the settings have to be simple, clear, accessible. The information about what a migrant might need to do to come into the country should be readily available. Um, and as I said, you know, uh, keep keep investing, both businesses and the government, keep investing in training because that, you know, that that's the future workforce. Even if it goes to Australia, even if these people go to Australia or go elsewhere in the world, they'll eventually come back to New Zealand, we fingers crossed, we hope. <laughs> No, I, I definitely see that. So if you were um, Prime Minister today and you had to make three things which you would do to make business New Zealand and, and business in Aotearoa stronger, what would they be specifically when it comes to workforce? Uh, I would I would continue the good work uh, that has been done in terms of training, um, make training accessible uh, and ensure that workplace-based training was able to be audited and reflected and funded in a way that um, that can be reflected in a person's skills so that an employer can just go oh yeah okay I, I know what I know how skilled this person is we've got a pretty sort of disaggregated system in respect to that so that's one component the second component would be make the immigration rules simple fair transparent uh, and easy to navigate uh, and welcoming and uh, probably the third thing I'd, I'd say is um, you know, if we did get a flood of people, uh, there is a there is a corollary component to put a lot of funding and make and facilitate uh, the development of a lot of infrastructure. And now, now we're probably building some infrastructure like housing at a scale and pace in New Zealand that we haven't seen for some time. That's it. It's probably a bit at risk, to be honest, given rising interest rates and so forth. Um, but doesn't mean, and you know, we've also got other challenges. Inflation, inflation really stops. Um, government spending money because as soon as they do it they're just going to increase the inflationary pressure or especially if they do it at, at scale and pace but we've got a massive infrastructure challenge so if you do the first two things you're certainly going to need to do the third thing which is which is infrastructure development at scale and pace and continue that and probably have some decent aspiration around it not build it for tomorrow but build it for 50 years um, I think that's probably one of the challenges New Zealand in some ways in the past has had it, we've either overbuilt <laughs> or we've underbuilt. Um, and and in some ways there's a big gap at the moment. Obviously technology, you know, I come from the world of media and tech and stuff and I'm very, um, seeing the upside of global weightless technology to bring, you know, disproportionate amount of value into, into an economy. If, if you could wave a wand and bring in X amount of people that are high tech skilled workers to New Zealand, how many do you think you'd want to bring in? 
like because I know they've they've talked about it before, and it, it seems you know as much as you want to go down fishing, forestry, and farming, yada yada, I get all that, but totally limitless, weightless, global, scalable value. How many do you think New Zealand could actually take on, and what impact do you actually think it would make to the economy? Do you think it would actually shift it if we doubled down on tech more? What are your thoughts around that whole space? Definitely. Uh, well, look, I mean, I think there's probably two things there. Um, I, uh, NZ Rise um, did some work which said we're about 5,000 um, tech people short uh, in New Zealand, and that's across a whole range of different uh, different roles and different types of skill sets. Um, there's no doubt, I mean, for all the reasons you've outlined, we, we like other countries in the world, are, are looking at these opportunities. Um, and you think about how to maximize them. So, so investment in broadband has provided a, a significant advantage to New Zealand, ultra-fast broadband. Um, the, you know, and it's, I think it's good that we've pushed that out to rural communities now or starting to push it out to rural communities. It's been a bit slow. We need to get it out into those rural communities because we don't want a digital divide. Um, and I think it's really, really important, especially for young people in lower socioeconomic communities to have access to the not just the network, not not just the devices, but the networks, um, so that they can, you know, kids are smart, man. You know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are that they grow up in. Kids are smart. They they learn by osmosis. They're just doing stuff. Um, so if we allow and enable them to have the tools um, and make it easy for them, and if 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 there are communities that can't afford it, we just we just give it to them in some other way. We help subsidise it, whatever it is, um, because we don't want a digital divide. We don't want that divide. We don't want to. Um, we don't want to create, uh, you know, social inequity. And in what would inevit what is inevitably going to be a pretty pretty fundamental part of our future uh, workforce and our future development and our future economy, right? So, so I think certainly you know bringing people in continue to train new zealanders what, what make tech attractive to kids um and make it attractive in other ways agriculture can be a tech business believe it or not um you know if you think about how farm some farmers are managing their farms today with drones with halters so they don't have the capital cost of fences they've got thirty thousand, you know points on a cow a day they can anticipate when the cow is going to get sick even before it gets sick so you know some of those things are incredibly um you know they're they're amazing innovations uh for you know what has been a fairly basic economy but there's no doubt um that if we want to super uh, if we want to boost uh or super supersize our economy then 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 tech and uh, underpinning tech with skills is going to be the way to go yeah, it, I don't actually realise that. Say twenty thousand, you know, you just want to, and make it attractive. Why wouldn't you incentivize, incentivize kids to go into STEM, you know, in some other way, um, figure out you know, what is going to work for for them? Um, because yeah, it's it's serious stuff. Well, yeah, I, I didn't actually realise that we were short by the five thousand, which I was thinking I was like five thousand because I was thinking to your point, it's like brand fifty thousand, you know, giddy up. Or the, you know, they think from the training side down the bit is it does the government decide? Okay, any of the STEM things in in all universities, all free for everyone if you're New Zealand citizen, go for gold, done. Broadband out to the thing, you know, and it's it's cool to see the momentum shifting that way. But you know, you're seeing a couple of these unicorns and stuff pop up. It's weightless, it's global, and I don't think I, I feel that we had such a massive 
opportunity to be a magnet for global talent through COVID and stuff for opportunities to have like all these global businesses that were running they were all paused we were going but we didn't really it didn't feel like there was many initiatives around actually trying to use it as a, a magnet for commercial opportunity to New Zealand anyway but I'm sure um, there's many thoughts around that um, I'm interested in this you talked about youth and people before this intersection of youth coming into the workforce um, you know, over in here in the States, you can just have this little Amazon app and you walk straight into a store. There's no checkout people. You put a little thing, you just grab whatever. All of a sudden, you're, not, you're, you're looking at news on your phone instead of doing the paper route. You know, jobs are changing. The world is changing. Business is changing. How do you think for like most teenagers and stuff coming out of school now, what their view on the world is when it comes to business? And, and we talked about it before, Kirk. They, it seems like they've got a bit of a different mindset when it comes to youth with how they see that the, the world of business. What's your view on their view? Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, I think businesses are going to have to work harder and harder and harder to be attractive to, to young people. I mean, I think they're going to want to work in, in their own ways. And we're already kind of seeing a bit of that um, post-COVID, as I sort of said before, you know, you, <laughs> pre-COVID, we just in our small-ish organisation, we've got around between 30 and 40 people, right? Um, we had a flexible uh, working policy because we have, in our work, we have big peaks and big troughs. In the peaks, um, kind of, you know, people are overworking and in the troughs, they're underworking. So why not just give them back some time? So we, we were running it a bit like that. Um, <clears throat> and now, you know, there's a huge demand for hybrid working from people. They don't want to spend, you know, 40 minutes or an hour in traffic each way. Um, that's an hour more that they get with their kids um, or an hour that they more that they get with their friends or their community. Surfing. Surfing. Yeah, surfing. Surfing. <laughs> um, so, so all of those things uh, are, are, have already shifted very, very quickly. And then if you think about what we've just been talking about, um, uh, technology within a, within a workplace, you know, young people are going to say i really want to work in a in an environment that is that is uh, going to enable me to engage with a whole bunch of different technologies if i can get that um, or a whole bunch of people that are working in uh, those technology spaces so the demands from young people and young leaders i think um, are, are great because they force uh, the business community to continue to innovate um, and be responsive to the needs because otherwise they, they won't win because they won't win the war for talent um, and it won't be attractive. Uh, and so, so those things are all good pushes. We had, um, we had uh, four young business leaders uh, speaking at an event the other night. Uh, they're, incre they're all incredibly impressive. Um, so Sam Johnson, Dr. Um, Dr. Angela Lim and uh, Syed Mateli, uh, uh, all doing quite different things. Uh, and Josh, uh, Josh Tan, who works for us, who's the, uh, who, who runs our Export New Zealand brand, um, and they're all part of the young, uh, Australian Museum Leadership Forum Young Leaders Group, and um, you know they were, you know, they're not they're not backward about coming forward about what they see as you know is needed in the business community, and and also what's what barriers they see existing for them as the in their roles as as young leaders and young entrepreneurs, uh, and and how things how things can be done differently, um, which is great. I mean that's that's what we need. It's a good kick up the ass. Do, do you think that today's youth is way more purpose-led than my youth or your youth? Do you think we've got better? Do you think our youth have become better humans to care more, give more of a shit about things that actually matter? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, well, look, I mean, I think I think they're more committed to working, as I said earlier, in those purpose-led organisations. And where, where they can see a purpose-led organisation, which will lead to purposeful and meaningful work, it's going to be more attractive for them, right? Um, whereas, you know, if, if there's not a great strategy, there isn't any single purpose. You just kind of work, you're just turning up to work every day, right? So that, that doesn't really, that will not spin a lot of people's wheels. Uh, so, so, um, so are they are they more uh, attuned to it than we were? Probably, I would say the world is quite a different place. I mean, I, just when we we're talking about when I was ten years old, my aspiration was to be a lawyer. But I mean, back then I'd never heard of this thing called the internet. I didn't really know what the internet of things could do. AI was something that was in two thousand AD in Tornado, uh, which is a comic book. Uh, there were still comic books. Um, you know, the biggest challenge that I thought about was, you know, where BMX bikes might develop <laughs> in the next phase. Um, and you know, look now, you know, New Zealand and New Zealand and New Zealand companies putting satellites into space to help um, Japanese fishing boats, uh, Japanese fishing companies manage their vessels and manage the safety of their fishermen. Um, you know, completely different world. So. So, um, so I, I don't know. I think we we're probably um, we were sort of formed by the circumstances of our times, but these young people are, are formed by the circumstances of their time and an ever increasing fear that climate change will destroy the planet. You know, um, and that you know that might be the end of humanity. That that probably is something that's fueling um, their desire to work in purpose-led organisations. Mm. So you've been around business and money through law, finance, Westpac, all this big stuff. If you were to, if you're a 25 year old person getting into the business game, wanting to kick off into business, do the rest of it, what are the key couple of things that you think would be most mission critical for them to really think about when they start their journey of business? 25 kicking off. Well, I mean, I think one of the things is um, there's a real differentiator and it doesn't matter who who you are or how old you are, right? If someone says, yeah, I'm really keen to do that versus, uh, or I'm really keen, I, I, I wanna, I'm really keen to do it, but I want to know more about it. I want to know more about the specifics of what I will need to do to be successful versus someone who says, no, I'm not really that interested in that. Um, I'll, I'll go away and just, you know, do the things that I want to do. Those that, that's a big differentiator, I think. Um, so so being willing to accept responsibility and take on a challenge, uh, it's a big differentiator when you when you're working with people. I think, and it doesn't really matter. You know, it's the same as true on the sports field, right? <laughs> if you're playing football and you've got a lazy back or something, or you know, a lazy midfielder, that's probably me. Um, you know, not distributing the ball, um, not really wanting to do that much, not running, not defending that much. Um, so I think tick I the think, box. You're there. You're yeah. there, but you're not present. That's right. That's right. We, yeah, yeah. So I, I think those are those are quite different things. Um, or differentiating things so so being as i said being willing to accept those challenges and look i mean i think the other thing is um uh you don't become resilient by not taking on challenges it, resilience is born out of you know losing facing failure um you know 
doing stuff that is not easy because if it's easy you're not going to build that much resilience it's those experiences and if you, if you don't if you're not willing to take on those experiences and fail at something or you know find things are much harder than what you thought and work your way through that um then again you're not going to build much resilience and capability in that area and that that has other impacts i think in other areas of people's lives as well yeah, I've just written down, yeah, that this challenges mindset mixed with mm. this resilience and persistence, right? That's that mm. thing of like, okay, cool, and, and go, go. Because you're right, it builds up, it builds up like mental muscle and challenges to keep sort of fighting through. Because then as it gets, I'm sure, to where you're at now, Kirk, the, the stuff that you're dealing with, you'd probably a lot more, you know, built up mentally or intellectually to be able to take them on because you've consistently tried to push, push, push and go, go, go. Um, Before we go, Kirk, I've got one more final question. Looking at your little CV and your great accomplishments so far and with explaining to me how clearly articulate you are, would you ever rule out, 100% rule out, ever going into politics? Yes. Oh, really? (laughs) Oh, Okay, so no politics. Okay, I was, I was, I was, I was like, oh, you know, so maybe, why maybe, not? In a t- <laughs> maybe a local council or something. Maybe a maybe maybe a local body. I mean, I think I would probably rather than involve myself in politics, I would, I'd probably be more more likely to um, contribute to uh, not for profit um, community organisations somewhere. I, you know, that would just be something that where I could probably make a direct difference. I mean, politics is a distributed system and it, you know, I think politicians uh, have a lot of, uh, you know, great, great intentions uh, and they, they, most of them, my observation is most of them work extremely hard, Um, but it just shows how, how challenging and difficult it can be to make a real difference in politics. Um, my observation is uh, I would probably be much better placed to, to do and make some of those differences within some sort of community organisation. Well, it sounds like a great excuse to go surfing more, mate. It definitely makes sense. <laughs> I don't really want to hey, say re- <laughs> well, I'll say it for you. Hey, I really appreciate your time, Kurt. Congrats on the, the mission so far. And I'm um, really uh, interested in seeing the journey that you've been on, but also some of the, um, some of the state of play with where the industry's at, where it's going, the challenges we face, and some of the ways to pop out in the future. So I really appreciate your time. Cheers. Thank you very much. Legend. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of Rebet Live. I hope you have an awesome rest of the day. I hope you learned some stuff. He's a very smart brain indeed. I like the thinking around the challenges mindset and having resilience and mixed with persistence. I also am in full agreement that we should be not only opening the borders up for 5,000 people, we should be bringing 20,000, 50,000 amazing, awesome global tech workers into the workforce here in New Zealand. Why? I'll tell you why. Fishing, forestry and farming is unscalable. We do not have the ability to do trillions of billions of it, but with technology, it is totally weightless, it is totally lightless, and it can go global all at the click of a button. And when you have brains like that, they can create awesome things. That brings in revenue to the nation. And if you want more schools and want more stuff, that means if we've got more businesses doing well, they pay more tax and you can get more cool stuff for your community. Business is great and business is good, but it's also very tricky to balance both sides at all times. And I think specifically with technology, the way we're doing it, I think we need a bigger focus on that. And, you know, I even was kind of into that idea as well, where why doesn't the government just make it free for, you know, anyone to be able to study STEM at any any university in New Zealand. That'd be pretty awesome. So much more we can do. 
New Zealand can be better. I believe we can, and hopefully you do too. If you've missed an episode, just check out to download the Rover app or uh, on Spotify, wherever you get your audio things, and get on with a good day. Missing the episodes, they're right on there. Have a good day, team. Be good, be great, keep it rural. See you soon.